Hello, folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to synchromysticism, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, a.k.a. Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the Biza blog and the author of the recently released A Special Relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visaview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-B-I-E-W dot blogspot.com. And procure a copy of the book and my other works at the Farm's official store, which is the farmpodcast.store. That is the farmpodcast, all one word, dot store. And obviously, if you want extra farm each month, uh, sign up for our Patreon uh, thing. You'll get two additional full-length episodes uh, each and every month. Anyway, today's guest is the Other-in-Chief of Threshold, Journal of Interdisciplinary Consciousness Studies, and is a contributor to the Daily Grail, Plain Shifter Magazine, Disinformation, and Reality Sandwich, among many others. He is also a sometime TEDx organizer and the founder of Liminal Analytics, Applied Research Collaborative. Folks, I'm pleased to give you guys David Metcalf. David, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you for having me. All right, today's show is a long overdue uh, next installment in the farm's ongoing Annie Mystery Babylon series. The title of this series is, of course, a dig at the late William Milton Cooper's legendary broadcast series, Mystery Babylon. Over the course of some 43 installments, Cooper purported to tell the true role that various secret societies and cults have played in world history. Needless to say, this is both a fascinating and relevant topic. However, Bill Cooper did not always display the best scholarship, to put it mildly. Hence, the farm's own humble alternative. However, it's not just Cooper's questionable scholarship that I am hoping to rebuke here. It is also his narrow definition of cults and secret societies. For Cooper, and most of his accolades, anything nominally Christian, unless it was the Jesuits, of course, uh, is avoided at all costs. This is a glaring era as many of the more notorious cults and secret societies of the 20th century and beyond have professed Christian or professed Christian outfits. Whether they were or not is of course debatable, but they chose to display a Christian face to the public at large. Today specifically, we're going to talk about Rick Joyner and the cult that he oversees. It was long known as Morning Star Ministries, as loaded a name for a Christian church as one is apt to find. But Joyner and his church also provide us with a fascinating glimpse into a broader and equally cultish movement known as the New Apostolistic Reformation. We're going to cover all of these things as well as the Western tradition of sex magic and theurgy. Yes, dear listeners, both those things are intimately intertwined with Joyner and Morningstar Ministries. It's going to be quite a show. So let's get to it. Okay, David, before we really get into Morningstar Ministries, we need to unpack a few things. There are a lot of concepts here that will not be familiar to most people, uh, you know, who have not studied the NRA and the like. So to start with, why don't you tell us about Christian Reconstructionism and Dominionism? Yeah, sure. Um, so Christian Reconstructionism um, and Dominionism kind of, there. it's a movement in the wider evangelical church, um, which is kind of the political face um, if that if that's a, a way to describe it, the sort of the where the body of the evangelical church as, as a movement uh, kind of fits in with shaping society with a Christian vision. Um, you know, Christian Reconstructionism it comes out of this idea of returning the church to its roots. 
So you kind of cut out 2000 years, you go back to first century, you know, first to like third century um, and reestablishing the, what's kind of viewed as the, the traditional church um, as it was defined in the, uh, the New Testament. Um, and with that comes this concept of dominionism uh, where you are fulfilling the, what's called the great commitment or the, you know, that you're going to go and spread the gospel to the world. Um, however, in so doing, um, the dominion part of it comes in, in the fact that the people who follow these beliefs to their fullest believe that they have been given dominion over the earth, as it says in Genesis, um, to uh, kind of reshape the earth for the coming of Christ, or that that will be the coming of Christ. You know, once you start to get into the details, it sort of splinters off into different ways it's applied. But essentially, the idea being that, you know, the, the true believer um, has the God-given right to take dominion over um, the earth, both in terms of society and in terms of uh, politics, you know, in terms of culture. So it really fits within that, um, what people may be familiar with, the term culture wars, um, the kind of, you know, like hard right, kind of uh, Christian right is a, a sort of a, an aspect of this concept of dominionism. Fantastic. Now, um, how about the latter rain movement? How does that factor in? Yeah, so the, the latter rain movement comes in, in, uh, so you have this, there's, it, it's kind of interesting because I think to kind of, to, to sort of set the base for this, most, most people, um, if they haven't been deeply involved in the Christian church, um, and even some folks who are deeply involved in their local churches may not recognize that Christianity is not this kind of monumental edifice. You know, it's, it's a, um, it's a very wide net and there are a lot of different groups and a lot of different kind of power players moving within that. And there's a lot of movements as well, which, um, you know, in the, the 20th century, you know, we'll kind of look at with this, with this particular latter rain movement comes out of the, um, charismatic revivals and the, the Pentecostal revivals, which started in the late 1800s and then moved into um, really kind of like heating up in the 40s and then having a sort of second wave in the 60s and 70s. Um, but the, the latter rain movement is this concept that in the last days, um, the true believers will be empowered with supernatural abilities and they will be um you know kind of uh almost like um you know there's a, a there's a section in the the bible which speaks of you will ye will be as gods you know and so this latter rain movement really took that up add up um with the the charismatic and the pentecostal um gifts you know the gifts of the holy spirit um are basically these kind of superpowers that uh later day root um, believers will have in order to, you know, again, going back to this dominionism idea, they're given these supernatural abilities to go and conquer the world for Christ. Um, so what we're going to look at, you know, with Morningstar Ministries and with the New Apostolic Reformation is kind of the, the it's not the, they, they all um, reject the latter rain movement as being a heresy while at the same time kind of adopting 
exactly what made the, <laughs> the Lateran movement a heresy. So, you know, um, this, the Lateran movement comes out of the, the healing revival period, which was mid 20th century. Um, it was a huge movement. It's where a lot of televangelists, um, Oral Roberts and um, Kenneth Copeland, a lot of the people, you know, a lot of these televangelists that folks may know now um, were trained up out of this massive healing revival, which swept uh, the United States in the 40s. Um, it also, the latter rain movement was um, associated with a particular healing revivalist, um, William Branham, um, who most people will not be familiar with. But again, William Branham kind of uh, is a foundational figure, um, also has been sort of cast aside as a heretic. Um, but, uh, you know, his, the way that he believed, um, you know, in this, this concept of living in the last days, being given supernatural powers, um, and the way he presented that is very foundational to what Morningstar Ministries and a lot of these new apostolic reformation groups have sort of adopted now. Now, also, too, what was the um, the time frame like on the rise of Reconstructionism and Dominionism? It was like what right around the uh, the conclusion of the Second World War or something along those lines. Well, yeah. So, um, Christian Reconstructionism and Dominionism proper come about in the '60s and '70s. Um, the it's it f sort of flows out of the post World War II period. Um, you know, uh, some of the things that you've been looking at recently um, and Dr. Future talks about um, some of these, the Presbyterian groups that were, um, you know, kind of building Pew and that um, who were, were building political bases post-World War II. Um, you see uh, Billy Graham as kind of like a, a whitewashed version of this. Um, you know, he's sort of the, the popular face of this, sense that, you know, there's going to be this sort of Christian revival and this Christian reclaiming of the world. Um, he publicly never espoused those views necessarily, but um, Bill Bright, who was uh, the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ and was a, a close associate of Billy Graham's, um, Bill Bright is the one that, uh, one of the two figures that created this concept of the reclaiming the seven mountains um, and the seven mountains are these seven pillars of culture that uh, in reclaiming them you will gain dominion over the world and this is kind of where we start to get into this weird space where when it's being talked about in terms of evangelism and in terms of what people are assuming is, you know, we're hearing about Christianity, right? And so as they're talking about this stuff and as they frame it, um, it sounds pretty innocent. But if you have any concept of uh, psychological warfare or, you know, soft power, and you start to re-examine re what these people are talking about, suddenly you sort of see this framework um, that's being used under the, you know, the auspice of Christianity, which is actually a fairly powerful decentralized um, mechanism for gaining power over a culture. Yeah. Um, that's, you know, one of the things that, that we'll, we'll look at with the new apostolic reformation and we'll get into that um, is their use of these, uh, you know, essentially the Christian mythos um, to, to, uh, create a, a sort of body, you know, sort of uh, a, well, a mechanism or a machine to take over the culture, 
you know, and so this, this concept of Bill Bright and uh, another fellow who I don't remember his name, they claim to be given this vision by God that uh, there were these seven mountains, you know, it's things like the arts, education, um, you know, stuff like that, that form these seven pillars of society that once the Christian is able to implant themselves into those areas and then build out a network from those areas. I mean, we're talking about cell groups, right? I mean, this is like, this is like classic insurgency techniques being used. um, Uh, And it's a model uh, for that, you know, was uh, Pat Robertson also a part of this whole milieu? I know I've seen him linked to dominionism before. Yeah. See, and that's, so that's the other thing is that these, these concepts, uh, you know, dominionism and Christian reconstructionism, they sit high up. Right. And so one of the interesting things historically is that um, these groups really didn't, they, they were fighting against the church in a certain sense. So what you see with Pat Robertson is that Pat Robertson comes out of the charismatic movement. And the fundamentalist, well, he comes out of the charismatic movement. Um, Someone like uh, Jerry Falwell comes out of the fundamentalist movement. Billy Graham comes out of the evangelical movement. These historically within the 21st century and before that were competing forces. Like these were not compatible. A fundamentalist would look at an evangelical and think that they were a weak Christian. Charismatic would look at a fundamentalist and think that they were too literal. Fundamentalists would look at a charismatic and think that they were, um, you know, that they were heretic. Yeah, like, yeah, basically, yeah, you know, like it's not, you don't do that, right? So like, so these- snakes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you don't have this connection, but what happens with these, uh, it's called a parachurch organization. You know, it's this kind of like hard, ecumenicalism where at the leadership level you know pat robertson would be talking to jerry falwell and billy graham would be talking to both of them and they would have this idea of well we're going to win it for christ and then we'll figure out what you know we'll we'll let the theology figure itself out later and so you know again from a christian perspective that sounds really great right like we're all going to come together under christ but these people are dealing with money and they're dealing with politics and they're dealing with society so what you're actually getting is these different power groups within a culture coming together at the top levels and talking to each other and saying hey like how do we build a voting block right and then once we get the voting block or you know get these different areas of culture under our control then we can spread our message and start to you know move money and move resources and that kind of thing so your question about pat robertson pat comes in in the 70s right in the 80s really is when he he really takes off but under this concept of the moral majority and the moral majority concept was literally created based on the gallup polling so what they were doing was was they were watching the gallup polls for belief in god and as soon as they got a majority of people in the United States saying, we believe in God, whatever that meant, right? It could be a Muslim saying that on the thing, or it could be, a, you know, someone who was Jewish. It could be, you know, an agnostic who just had this concept of God. But once that question hit majority, they went forward and said, okay, moral majority. And then the moral majority became this parachurch, meaning, you know, surrounding the church, kind of through the church, idea that they could then start to align these disparate groups fundamentalism evangelicalism 
charismatics and Pentecostals and start to align them under this broader concept. And this has been some, this was something that Billy Graham had been working at all along in kind of dumbing down the, the Christian teachings to the idea of, you know, say you believe in Christ and then you're saved. Um, you know, so with these kind of like missionary efforts, and that's one of the interesting things um, that we'll see with kind of the history of Morningstar Ministries is that they are a very powerful version of this ecumenical concept of, of Christianity and also the missionary concept. And a lot of the mythology and the, the cultural uh, precedents that they draw from are some of the basis of the missionary work. And that's a lot of you know, New Apostolic Reformation as well. Um, the concept of the New Apostolic Reformation came out of a fuller theological seminary teacher of missions um, named C. Peter Wagner. And so it was this concept of an ecumenical missionary push that um, really developed that. And that's also it, the missionary end is where you find connections between Billy Graham's organization and uh, Willis Harmon. And, and the, you know, some of the new age stuff that was going on in the late 70s and the psychic studies and all of this stuff starts to blend together. Um, when in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, these mission groups start to work on this concept of supernatural living. Um, you know, and they start to apply these things and it, it gets, you know, we're at a point now where we see the fruit of this stuff in um, someone like Paula White who's, uh, you know, President Trump's go-to pastor. And, uh, you know, this, she's working with a very globalized sense of supernatural Christianity, um, you know, with deliverance and, and um, exorcisms and that kind of thing. But in doing so, she's, you know, on the outside, it looks like she's doing this kind of like extreme version of charismatic thinking, but on the back end and on the theological end and on the end of where these people are networking and talking, a lot of this stuff is based on demographic profiling. It's based on cognitive philosophy. You know, it's based on how the mind works and how behavior works. Um, and that's all sitting on the back end and then put a Christian gloss over it and you get, you know, this stuff that looks like wacky, um, you know, name it, claim it, um, televangelism. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, there's, there's definitely a very insidious history about that, uh, for sure. Um, you know, that was kind of something I got into my strange realities presentation. And, um, since then I've found some even more just incredible uh, information about some of the overlap with some of the political warfare methods that were being used by the intelligence services and some of these other characters that uh, show up in these movements. It's uh, heady stuff, man. Um, but let's uh, let's briefly go over the Kansas City Prophets right quick. Uh, they're another like one of these fascinating kind of cultish groups in this whole milieu. Uh, I was hoping you yeah. Could a bit. Yeah. So they, you know, they're they they're a group that comes out of um, you know this. Uh, so you know the New Apostolic Reformation is is after the Kansas City Prophets when it really starts. But they're a representation of these ideas that were at the base of this, where. You know, this idea that um, in, in the Christian reconstructionism, reclaiming the early church, um, in the early church, there were prophets. 
And so, you know, in it's called a, you know, the, the return of the fivefold ministry, um, which is, you know, prophets, apostles, pastors, um, you know, the, they're these original categories that were used in the church. So the Kansas City prophets are this group that comes out in the late 80s. And um, they are a charismatic church that uh, claimed to have, you know, living prophets, right? And then within the mythology that is kind of growing from this, you know, there's the historical growth of this concept of prophecy from groups like the Later Rain movement and that. Um, but what's interesting with most of these, um, the New Apostolic Reformation, uh, you know, Morning Star Ministries and uh, the Kansas City Prophets Group and that, they all, while referencing history, are very capable of creating ahistorical a narratives, right? So they negate the actual linear history and see things in this weird way where you know, someone who, sure, we don't believe in what they believed in, they're a, her a heretic like William Branham, but William Branham was also uh, gifted by God, and so we're going to follow exactly what he did kind of thing. And so, you know, the Kansas City Prophets draw on this. Um, one of their main figures who is associated with Morningstar Ministries uh, is this guy, Bob Jones. And Bob Jones is a perfect example of this kind of ahistorical, uh, historical play that they that these groups do um bob jones claimed in, in childhood in arkansas that the angel gabriel came to him when he was age seven and appeared to him on this dirt road and and blew you know silver trumpets in his face and announced him as a prophet um he goes on in real life to you know start kind of showing up at churches and and giving these prophecies um he at a certain point is kicked out of the churches because of uh, some sexual impropriety. Um, they, you know, come back to him later where he's now, you know, forgiven for that. And maybe it wasn't as bad as, as they thought kind of thing. And he becomes this major figure in Rick Joyner's life, Rick Joyner being the founder of Morningstar Ministries as this prophet who, you know, announces the, the prophetic mantle on Rick Joyner. Um, and he is a very, uh, politically active thing. A lot of these prophecies have to do with communism, uh, the rise of Islam and as a global force and that kind of thing. So a lot of these kind of prophecies that he's getting are very tied to, uh, things that are in the interest of right-wing United States, uh, you know, groups. And that it just so happens that that's the, the center of his, his kind of prophetic work. Um, but, you know, he continues to have these encounters with angels. Um, they still, he's passed away and they still have, you know, his wife still announces Bob Jones prophecies that were given whenever, you know, to this day, they have live videos of his wife, you know, that come up teaching that. And he, they have this concept of passing on the mantle. Um, and Bob Jones is a major figure in terms of who would be considered a prophet within these movements. You know, he, he would go around and claim visions over people and that they would be the next prophet or they would be prophets, um, including uh, folks that later, you know, fell into things that uh, led them to be kicked out of the church. There's a guy, um, I forget his first name, but his last name is Bentley. I think it's Todd Bentley, um, who was famous. You can see him on YouTube, like punching and kicking people during uh, exorcisms 
and he's you know really tattooed and like doesn't look like who you would think would be a pastor he's real aggressive um but he uh he got into some trouble um you know with his with his marriage and stuff and they had to remove him from the church but he was one of the people that bob jones said was you know a new prophet so that's one of the interesting things is these people while claiming prophecy and these supernatural abilities also have a a strange habit of choosing the wrong people who end up getting into trouble and having to be uh, kicked out of the movement or distanced from the movement. And the Kansas City Prophets group uh, really spun out some of the sort of the key, uh, you know, figures in supernaturalizing Christianity. And a lot of this has to do with um, the, uh, the books that they wrote the kind of networks of publishing that they did, their support of each other. Um, and the, you know, that's one of the, again, when you're looking at this stuff, um, it's really interesting how much publications and publishing and having your work, um, you know, in other people's hands and that play into how these groups, you know, kind of spread and help each other, you know. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's just such a fascinating thing with the Kansas City Prophets. Um, I, I had some people liken them to me to um, almost like the whole concept of um, the secret chiefs, uh, excuse me, secret chiefs in theosophy. Um, is that kind of like a sense you've gotten at times? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't. Uh, it's it, sort of, I mean, like the they're, I think they would like to think of themselves as that, you know? That's a, a, I don't know the, um, the, so James Gall is one of the, the figures that came out of this movement and he publishes the Elijah list, um, which is, uh, a newsletter that goes out. It's an email newsletter. Um, and that, uh, is very influential in terms of selling product and placing the books in front of people. Um, John Paul Jackson, uh, is another figure that came out of this. He was really big in terms of bringing back the concept of prophetic dreams and dream work. Um, James Gall, uh, really, a lot of his books deal with living in the supernatural and kind of bringing down these supernatural powers. You know, so they do have this sense of, uh, you know, yeah, kind of a secret chief's like uh, superhero, you know, super being that has come down. Um, and again, going back to that concept of the later rain movement where, uh, you know, these people would be imbued with supernatural powers. Um, and they definitely network the way that, you know, kind of the secret chief concept would be in real life, you know, which are people placed in certain places that, uh, build sort of a cell insurgency group that, that spreads influence and that kind of thing. All right. Now, um, how about Rick Joyner, the founder of Morningstar Ministries? You've been, you know, kind of talking a little bit about his connections to the KC prophets. Um, I was just curious, though, did he actually prophesize himself or was it just more of like a, you know, a loose affiliation? No, he, uh, so he's, uh, one of his major teachers is Bob Jones, who was part of the Kansas City prophets movement. Um, and his, you know, Bob Jones was a mentor to him and uh, Morningstar Ministries featured Bob Jones fairly uh, prevalently. Um, one of the, one of the things that you kind of see with this stuff is, um, again, it's, it's ecumenical and loose and it's purposefully that way. So, um, you know, Rick Joyner may not be 
it's you know tied at the hip to someone like tom horn from defender publishing but they both go on jim baker's show right and so the kind of supernaturalism you know tom horn's more focused on transhumanism and the return of the nephilim and some of these more kind of uh out there concepts whereas rick joiner won't go that far with that stuff um but they appear on the same you know shows and they kind of network within the same parachurch uh loose circles you know um but in terms of the kansas city prophets and rick joiner uh bob jones was you know kind of the mentor to to rick joiner um and rick pops up in the 80s um with a book called uh there were two trees in the garden and um you know again with the publishing thing that's really interesting so he writes this book and this is kind of his prophetic vision um and it gets published and he self-publishes it and from from this publication he starts to network and build out you know this morningstar ministries they start to acquire more property in that and um really in looking into Rick Joyner, um, you know, one of the, the kind of early, you know, the going back to the, an earlier example of that he draws from, um, you know, this, uh, the Moravian church, right. Um, I was, it was in preparing for this show that I realized why he was drawing on them. And, you know, the Merovingian church is one of the first examples of uh, Protestantism prior to Luther. They come out of uh, Jan Hus's movement with the Hussites, which were uh, an early Protestant movement that came before Luther and uh, had a lot of effect within um, the Bohemian region, which is also where you get the, you know, the growth of in, in Bohemia, uh, the Rosicrucian movement later had a strong effect politically there and that and you know alchemy and, and that kind of thing were very prevalent in the bohemian area just era to, and uh, just interject here that's i'm assuming this is like why we have the whole you know kind of concept of the bohemian you know i mean it's kind of a decadent uh, figure is that i'd always sort of wondered where yeah. it came from so i'm t guessing this is sort of what that's a reference to yeah because it was you know so bohemia was going to be the the sort of the the alchemical paradise, and there was a there was this um, there was a political movement there, which I'm I'm not refreshed on the history of it, so I'm not even going to try to dive into to that. It's I mean, like, once you start dipping into some of this stuff, there's so many names and places and people and things. But there was there was a political movement there in the in the 1600s, and that really encapsulated this idea of uh, uh, in um, uh, one of the Shakespearean plays, which I think it's Merchant of Venice, but the the, the concept of the Catholics and the Protestants coming together um, and the uh, Illuminist branch of Freemasonry and the Rosicrucian branch of Freemasonry coming together and science and faith coming together. And, you know, what the best part of what alchemy would be, you know, this, this, this sort of like spiritual science and all of that, like forming, you know, the old world, right? The classic Greek, uh, the Islamic world. So, you know, Sufism and that, um, uh, the Jewish world, Kabbalah, and all of these things coming together into the perfect uh, earthly kingdom. And in Bohemia for a very short period of time, there was this concept politically that this could be something that happened. And it was kind of this like Renaissance in the, Bo in the Bohemian area. Area, 
and so yeah the those kind of ideas then you know we get the idea of like the but there was also a, a bohemian movement i believe which was different but um yeah it kind of encapsulates that concept which then you know becomes the romantic movement and sort of influences all these things um, once it failed politically um but what you know in that the uh you know this the moravian church that comes out of this this early protestantism um is a very mystical strain of christianity but the thing that so in looking at that um that was kind of what i thought joiner was going with with this but what i found out as i was kind of refreshing on this or you know it finally struck me was the other thing that they were really big at was missions and not just missions but missions to specific groups in specific areas to gain power in that area when they were the underdog politically. Now you're talking about uh, Joiner's Church or uh, the Moravians? The the, Morav- the Moravian Church, right? Yeah. So so this is this is something that he's drawing on. This okay. is this is kind of a precursor to what he's looking at, and um, it was just really interesting to me because they had this concept of the uh, the remnant seed that was left behind when they were pushed out by the counter-reformation Catholics of, from the Bohemian era, like area, uh, they had this concept of this remnant seed that was left behind. And so again, cell groups, right? We have these cell groups of these believers that are left behind that then can build out politically as they can weave their way back into the, the society. Right. And that's what we're seeing with, uh, the new apostolic reformation in that. So when there, there's this weird interplay between both the spiritual legacy that they're looking at, you know, in terms of these, uh, you know, 17th century and 18th century believers that they're drawing on and saying, okay, these are our, our predecessors. But then there's also these political tools that were used that these groups had that they're also drawing on. You know that that groups like Morningstar and and folks like Rick, Rick Joyner are looking at and seeing these as tools that they can now use in the same way. You know, so what what Rick does is he publishes this book and uh, this uh, there there were two trees in the garden, right? So it's his vision, it's this this prophetic vision that he has, and that kind of becomes his shtick for his other publications early on, which is that he essentially goes into what seems to be a sort of trance state, you know? Wow. That is just incredible. Um, Uh, Well, and so with the, so this trance state that he goes into, right? So this visionary state, he writes these things up as prophecies, but if you look at it in terms of, um, you know, creative visualization or, um, out-of-body experiences or lucid dreaming and then you look at what he's writing about they're essentially yeah i wouldn't say they're essentially the same thing but they're very similar and it's very likely that what they're doing is they're going into a lucid trance state and sort of creating these creative visualizations that they're calling prophecies um you know and that's where it gets into this kind of weird area where how much do they, how much do they believe you know how cynical are they right like do they really believe these are visions from god um you know is this totally just a, a political machination like what's going on there 
and it's you know i think it would be almost impossible really to say like how sincere they are in these beliefs um with the you know is this truly a prophecy do they really believe they're speaking to god do they really think they're encountering angels you know because some of their behavior <laughs> leads you to think that they're you know cynical sort of opportunists um but other elements of it seem that no may, they may really believe that what they're experiencing are these sort of divine uh revelatory things hmm. yeah well these uh guys are uh, quite a cast of characters uh, that's to be sure now, I mean, I know um, as far as the Morvavians go, uh, one of the particular influences on Joyner was um, certain Count uh, Nikolaus uh, Zinvendorf, hopefully that's how it goes, uh, who was a bishop in the church. Now, apparently Joyner is even a collector of, you know, rare works by this guy. Uh, and that's very interesting um, because it seems like they, or at least particularly the Moravians during his uh, particular bishopship had almost developed kind of like a proto form of sex magic, more or less, among other strange practices. Uh, could you get into some of those that thrived during this particular era in what was it, I believe the mid 18th century? Yeah. Um, yeah, he, he was alive from 1700 to 1760. Um, he died at age 59. Um, so Zen, uh, <laughs> I have to apologize for the names here. Um, Zinzendorf uh, is he's an interesting figure. So his son actually was a little bit more involved in the totally uh, heretical practices, but it came from uh, Zinzendorf's concept of uh, what was, you know, this divine marriage. So... Uh, there there's in the in protestantism in early protestantism there was this this concept of perfectionism where um you know if you if you were truly pure in your belief in your faith you could achieve sort of an apotheosis where you were um you know you became sort of like you, you had a union with god um Zinzendorf's concept was that this was uh, possible within the marriage state between the man and the wife, and that through practicing a sort of contemplative sexuality, they would be able to achieve this union. Um, this was influenced by some of the mesmeristic thought that was going on at the time and the, you know, Rosicrucianism, uh, which blended Islamic mysticism and uh, Jewish mysticism and Christian mysticism. Um, and it, you know, this wasn't as far out back then as it, it may seem now when we're used to sort of a bland evangelicalism. Um, there was a, you know, the sense of the holy marriage where the, this contemplative state was the ultimate example of the union between man and woman which would return you to the Edenic state, right? Like that was the return to Adam and Eve and their innocence. Um, but it was a, a contemplative practice that he actually encouraged and informally taught. And this is another interesting example of what, what we're looking at with someone like Rick Joyner, who's so obsessed with the Moravian church um, and figures like Zinzendorf, who he considers one of his sort of spiritual forefathers, um, how much of, you know, how much is he drawing, right? Like how much is he going back to? Because Zinzendorf uh, was very able at presenting one teaching to the public 
while in his private pastoral teachings, he taught other things, you know, a sort of secret teaching of which this holy marriage was one of those things. Now his son went so far as to teach um, meditations on the wound of Christ um, that were incredibly sexual, um, you know, where the wound becomes the vulva. And, you know, there were elements of homosexual practice in that as well, that the, the son sort of taught in his thing. And he did that separately from the, uh, you know, the father, um, Bishop Zinzendorf. Bishop Zinzendorf, when he got word of it, was like, whoa, 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 we're not doing that, right? Like, that's not, we're, that's not what we're going to go down this road. Um, and his son was censored on that by the church, you know. Um, but it, it draws this really interesting question of when you have someone like Rick Joyner who is involved in marriage counseling, that is one of his things, you know, this concept of male and female polarity uh, play a large part in his, his pastoral teachings. Um, he's part of men's groups that are very much about, you know, sort of like the, the promise keepers, if people are familiar with that, would be a, a, a more public version of, of the kind of things that he teaches, you know, is, are these teachings now making their way into the contemporary church um, as forms of contemplative sort of sex magic, you know, um, like, almost like a, a Christian Tantra? Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's really strange. I mean, it's effectively this kind of bizarre sexualization, if you will, of the body of Christ. Um, I mean, I know from one of the accounts I read, they even had a kind of visualization technique where they, what was it, contemplated the Christ's penis at the moment of circumcision or something to that effect. Um, it's just, it's, it's very strange. And uh, it kind of reminds me a little bit too of what you were just getting at with these visualization techniques, I guess, apparently that um, Joyner and company practice when they go into these, um, these almost trance-like states and so forth. But yeah, and that, well, and, and to go to the, um, why would they imagine Christ's penis at the, the moment of circumcision, right? And this, this comes out of mesmerism, which uh, found that the mesmeristic state was uh, conducive to sexual expression, right? So at the time, you had mesmerism as a scientific belief that was coming out of these ideas of fluids, you know, magnetic fluids and that kind of thing, um, people going into ecstasies. And so there was this kind of crossover that allowed them to see the you know, kind of sexual excitement as this means of increasing that magnetism. So what you find in Zinzendorf is the spiritualization of those techniques. Yeah, I mean, um, it's just, it's, it's really incredible. Um, and to give some, you know, perspective to listeners here, uh, I mean, you know, the, uh, the Moravians are just not spoken about very much, but they did have quite a profound influence on Western occult traditions, um, from what I can tell. And certainly it does seem that um, Crowley did uh, incorporate several references to this particular church and uh, his own system. I mean, especially with the whole concept of the, was it love feasts or something to that effect? Um, the use of agape and so forth. Um, yeah, well, and he comes out of, you know, I mean, he, his, his father was a, was a pastor, you know, and so he actually comes out of um, one of the, uh, it's the uh, I think Plymouth it's, Brethren. Yeah, the Plymouth Brethren, and their um, George Pember was a, a Brethren that 
it was really big on the concept of spiritualism being a return to interaction with fallen angels. Um, and Pember was writing around the same time as Ida Craddock, who is kind of the source for Crowley's uh, sex magic. A lot of this stuff comes from Ida Craddock's concept of angelic marriages. Um, and Pember is sort of the, the Christian side of that conversation that was going on in the, the 1800s um, and early 1900s uh, that um, looks at this concept of, uh, you know, spirit marriages and interacting sexually with uh, supernatural or paranatural forces, you know, which again goes back to this, this idea that Zinzendorf and them are working with, with their visualizations of, you know, Christ as a sort of sexualized figure. Now, another thing that I found really interesting in looking into this um, were the ties to um, the British East India Company. I mean, I believe apparently several of the missionaries for the uh, Moravians had uh, also worked with the India, uh, British East India Company, which may have been, you know, how they were directly exposed to Tantra effectively. And I thought this was interesting in light of um, the, uh, the specific Hellfire Club that had also been set up by, uh, I believe it was Sir Francis Dashwood. Uh, around the same time frame, like the middle of the 18th century. Of course, Dashwood's Hellfire Club also had several um, prominent members who had been, um, you know, involved with the British East India Company as well. So I just, that was kind of an interesting thing about uh, the potential spread to Tantra to the West that I had never really considered was how much of it, at least uh, specifically in the UK, had gone back uh, to this trading company. But I mean, it makes a certain kind of sense because obviously uh, company men would have had uh, direct access to many of the tantrics over there. Um, you know, well before many of uh, the broader British society would have, if at all. So it is an interesting state of affairs. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, that, uh, it, I think that it, it's, it's interesting because if you start to, um, once you start to look at these different groups and you start to see who they were associated with and, you know, kind of where their influence went, um, you start to see this whole history that we don't really think of. You know, there, there's these, there's these influences that you would never expect um, that really reach, they reshape um, history and they reshape sort of the, you know, the concept of what, what exactly is going on, you know? Um, and one of the things that, you know, I started to realize as I was, as I was researching this stuff, um, you know, really co going back from, uh, the Rick Joyner that and, and tracing back his influences and then it, it butted into um, you know like William Blake right like the fact that William Blake was so influenced by the uh, Moravian church and by these teachings and by Zinzendorf and while at the same time being influenced by Swedenborgianism uh, and mesmerism and you start to look at what the people were encountering back then you know who were working within this stuff and you know um, it's very interesting to see the influences that were flowing through this that you wouldn't think, you know, the, the prevalence of something like uh, of Tantra and that, which if you go back to the very first Rosicrucian manifestos, you see that they're, they're referencing Fez and they're referencing the Middle East and they're referencing Egypt, you know, and they're referencing uh, India in terms of uh, places where teachings are coming from. 
you know, and it's not this closed world of, you know, Europeans versus the East versus Africa versus the new world. It's this, this communicative matrix of things that, you know, people who were able to travel and who were able to acquire books and who were able to access these networks really had a fairly uh, wide reference range, you know, in terms of what they were looking at. And when you get to something like Tantra um, or these spiritual practices, you know, they're dealing with the physical body. So there's only so many uh, different, you know, kind of things you can really do, right? Like there's, at a certain point, they're all going to start to hit on what's effective and what isn't, no matter what road you kind of access them from. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, it is just kind of striking to see, you know, how prevalent some of these influences, especially from the East, were in Western occultism at this, you know, earlier date. Because uh, we usually assume, of course, that this type of thing didn't become uh, especially prevalent until around the 19th century. But I mean, clearly, uh, a lot of Western adepts have been aware of Tantra and this type of thing for probably several centuries beforehand, at least. Um, obviously, you know, we can go far back into some of the speculative history with the Knights Templar, that type of thing. But um, there is certainly at least a clear historical basis, uh, you know, probably from at least the 17th century or so. Um, now, another thing uh, the Moravians uh, were really fascinated by, as you've been kind of hinting at here, was the art of theurgy, uh, the communication with angels. And this is just such a fascinating topic that I was hoping you could delve into for a moment. Now, when it comes to theurgy uh, in the Western cult tradition, most people never really look beyond John Dee and the system that he crafted. But while I was uh, researching this topic, I learned that Dee's system was hardly the only means of theurgy being practiced in occult circles during the Enlightenment. Uh, could you get into some of the methods that the Moravians uh, would have encountered and some of the other kind of circles for this? Yeah, and you know, and so it's interesting with D because um, again, it's sort of this re recontextualizing his place in history. Um, he was, you know, he was the queen's uh, astronomer, right? Like, so he was the royal astronomer. Like, he was he was one of the leading mathematicians in the European fold at the time. Um, he was one of the leading uh, intellectual figures, and so. Um, why was he why was he summoning angels right and so it again it looks strange from from our perspective now but back then this was something that was you know completely within the bounds of possibility and it was even within um almost i wouldn't say orthodox but it was within an acceptable understanding of uh of christianity and christian practice um the pietist movement um which, you know, uh, the Moravian church is a, a version of pietism. Um, Rosicrucianism is a, is a version of pietism. It draws on pietist movement. It's a, they, the pietist movement had this concept, again, of, uh, you know, this ability to have a union with God through contemplation. And one of the ways that you would do that is on contemplating the lower levels going up to God. Now, um, within the hierarchy of existence within this, this cosmology, that would include angels, right? Like they would be above and they would be sort of the, the forces that God used to control the world. So, you know, in Neoplatonic thought, which is where this stuff comes out of, um, you know, theurgy proper comes out of Neoplatonism. 
um, which is Plotinus and um, Umbilicus. Um, these things would have come back into the thing, you know, during the Renaissance when the, the Piamander and the Hermetic teachings were being translated. Um, but they would have been available, you know, even in the Middle Ages through uh, Pseudo Dionysus and some of the other figures within the church who were writing about angelic hierarchies. And they were writing about angelic hierarchies based on models of the universe that were coming out of this Greek thought. And, you know, that the idea basically is that you have the universal mind, which is God, and then you have these tiers underneath that. Um, and the angelic realm represents the, you know, the higher tiers above man of a more perfect uh, uh, purity, right? Like to getting up to that universal mind. And in contemplating these angels, um, you would be able to then access them. And the interesting thing about the, the word angel, you know, um, the word angel in the Bible means messenger. The way that angel is used in the Middle Ages and the beginning of the Renaissance up to Kepler is power. So um, when we talk about physics, you know, now, and we talk about, you know, cause and effect, and we talk about, um, you know, magnetism or gravity, back in the Middle Ages and then in the beginning of the Renaissance, those things would be considered angelic because they were a higher order of being that affected everything, you know, and so it would be contacting those things. So when you start to look at it that way, you see why a mathematician and an astronomer was contacting angels because those things that he was looking at in physics in optics and, you know, light, the way the light refracts and that kind of thing, all of those things had angelic associations to them in that they were accessing this higher order of being. And so what would you be doing with theurgy? You would be contacting the lower order angels to get you to the higher order angels, which would then get you higher and higher until you achieved, you know, a sort of overall uh, union with God. And, um, you know, this, this type of teaching is available in Islam um, through the Illuminationist school. Uh, it's available in Judaism through Kabbalah. Uh, and it's available in Christianity through various esoteric and mystic forms of Christian thought. Um, the religious side of that usually hedges on how far you can go as a human while you're still alive in that process. Um, when it gets into the, the kind of heretical end of it uh, is when you start to have figures um, that say you can go to the full union while you're still alive. And this is sort of the same gradient scale that we see with dominionism and with contemporary practitioners, uh, you know, in these charismatic groups with, how far can you get towards this ability to have these supernatural abilities and to be like unto God, right? Um, Christ would be the ultimate example of one who in the Christian mythos is not just like unto God, but is God. So that would be the ultimate end of theurgy would be this union, right? And you have the baptism with John where the angel comes down and announces him as God's son that is the kind of thing that these people were working with, you know, and that is the kind of, um, you have figures in the enlightenment period when, uh, you know, Zinzendorf was practicing, um, who said that they spoke with angels and that angels 
you know, up to uh, some of the Christian uh, theosophists talk to uh, Sophia or wisdom, um, you know, the, the angel, which is essentially God's voice, right? Like the Holy Spirit. Um, so what's interesting with these contemporary groups is that take all of that kind of really flighty philosophical mysticism stuff and turn it into kind of a down and dirty political, you know, and more direct and, uh, I don't know, crass. I don't, I don't know how to describe it, but, you know, I mean, the Bob Jones would prophesy having been told by angels about baseball, right? Yeah, yeah. Or, and it's uh, just like... Kansas City Chiefs would win the Super Bowl in the year 2020. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, so it's kind of like everything that these people that came before were sort of looking for, which was this, you know, like this global sort of peaceful, beautiful crystalline kingdom of uh, for Walmart. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, this is a little bit more crass um, and, and a lot more violent and uh, it's a different kind of flavor to it. Um, yeah. I don't know. It's, it's odd to see. You know, it's, it is still the same. I mean, they, they say they're contacting angels. I have a book here from Morningstar called You May All Prophecy um, by Steve Thompson. And it, uh, you know, includes how to induce angelic visions, um, you know, which is the very definition of, of theurgy. But, uh, you know, to what end? You know, what, is, what exactly are they, are they dealing with? And it's, it's just really amazing. I mean, this, you know, again, is kind of another suppressed history because, I mean, you really wouldn't think of it, but um, theory is really, I mean, it's had a lot of influence in political thought uh, and circle, inner circles of power and so forth for many, many centuries now. I mean, going back to John Dee, I mean, of course, another uh, individual kind of had his own system was Cagliostro, I mean, who also had been involved in European courts and so forth um, at different times. I mean, and then we see sort of the modern manifestation here with Rick joiner but i mean in the same token too uh, a lot of crowley's system is also based off of uh the enochian keys of john d and kind of the same concept of uh, going through the different keys and that type of yeah thing. well and you know like i was talking about idocratic earlier idocratic wrote a book um called the heavenly bridegroom and ida was uh an early feminist early suffragist um who uh said that she was um, involved in a relationship with uh, a spirit, basically a spirit husband. Um, and she wrote extensively about this relationship and the, you know, it was, it was incredibly sexualized. Um, but she wrote about it in terms of heavily bridegroom, heavenly bridegroom, um, you know, meaning that this was an angelic union in the sense that her lover who was ostensibly, uh, I believed that she was saying that it was someone who had died that she had known, um, was, uh, you know, on this, this hierarchical ladder of, of angelic union, you know, and then you have things like incubus and succubus, which are kind of the demonic reflection of that kind of thing. Um, but what Ida does is she takes it out of that, that mythos and reclaims it and looks at it um, in terms of, you know, a more positive kind of union. But if you look at um, that tradition, uh, that goes into, you know, Crowley's 
looking at at sex magic and what are you doing with sex magic and that um it's and it's directly tied in and in weird ways because he's drawing from idocratic on the sort of theosophical end of things but then he's also drawing on a tradition that he got from his father with the plymouth brethren about these you know nephilim unions and uh the story in genesis with the fallen angels and that um so you know these things all sort of interact with each other but I would say that most people, I mean, uh, Wiser republished Idocratic recently, but I would think that, you know, most folks in the, the popular culture are not going to be vastly familiar with Idocratic's work. They might, you know, they'll be more familiar with Crowley and the idea of sex magic from that or Thelema, but they're not going to, you know, know that there was this time period where this was actually a conversation that was, you know, not so far from the mainstream. Um, this idea of, you know, angelic union and conversations with angels you know um and then in spoken about in a very similar way to the way that crowley talks about you know contacting your you know holy guardian angel yeah. yeah your holy guardian angel and that and that that working that he's doing there is a refinement of these theurgic workings which were much more diverse you know um in terms of historical practice and had had a lot more you know, ways of accessing that, that function. And he's become sort of the vehicle for that idea, you know, but it's, it's a much more diverse sort of thing. And this wouldn't be, you know, I mean, you talked about the Hellfire Club earlier. Well, Benjamin Franklin was associating with folks in the Hellfire Club. Um, while at the same time, writing about alchemy in the United States. And at the time of the... Uh, so didn't he have contacts with uh, Swedenborg, I believe, or yeah yeah well and that's that's you know the swedenborgian church was huge yeah, yeah. it's a huge movement you know and so um and again talking about this idea you know swedenberg is contacting angels you know and not only contacting angels but also other planets you know a sort of out-of-body planetary experience and experiencing other planets and that um and it's this it it wasn't as distant as we think it was now you know it, it was very much tied into everyone's thought you know um ethan hitchcock who was a a general in i believe the civil war um wrote extensively on mystical alchemy um you know and i think he was even the um secretary of defense for a while if i'm remembering correctly i would have, I would have been secretary of war in that era but... yeah secretary of war yeah so yeah. I mean, this is, you know, this was just something for me. I mean, researching a lot of this was just mind blowing because, I mean, you think about just the profound influence that, uh, you know, Crowley has had on the popular culture, but then you have this sort of underground culture, um, you know, that's come out of the, uh, the you know, the NAR here in um, uh, the United States, uh, even though it doesn't get a lot of press. I mean, it's a very prominent subculture. I mean, and, uh, you know, a lot of middle America and so forth. And a lot of this stuff ultimately though, kind of comes back to this, you know, concept of the Ergy and these angelic communications and what have you that began, that seems to really become prominent in the Renaissance and a lot of these, these circles we've been discussing. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's fascinating and it's incredible and it's a little disturbing. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's all those things. It's 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 the supernatural world that these that is all around us. Now, on the modern manifestations of this, uh, you know, we've talked a little bit about uh, the latter rain concept of Joel's army. Now, could you get into how that relates specifically to theurgy and its importance to the NAR? Yeah, you know, so Joel's army. Um, there's a a passage in Joel, um, which I would have to look up here. 
um, but essentially there's a passage, there's a passage in Joel, uh, the book of Joel in the Bible, uh, Joel being a prophet, where you have uh, two sort of competing visions within this chapter. And the, the beginning of the chapter sort of deals with this, this army coming and just storming the world and like destroying everything. And then the later half deals with um, the repentance of the believing body and coming back to uh, fasting and praying and having this relationship with God. So within the latter rain movement, these two things got smashed together with this idea of the invading army that's going to kind of conquer everything and the believing body, which is going to repent and fast and pray, uh, being one and the same and being these sort of, you know, you know, empowered by the Holy spirit believers that are just going to storm over everything. Um, the Kansas city prophet group has, uh, which is the, their, their church at the international house of prayer, um, has come out with a doctrinal statement saying that no, 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 the, invading army sort of conquering army is canaanite and evil the believing army is separate however the believers will have you know great ability in the last days right um but popularly this concept of joel's army um is where if it's so it's another it's a there's so many different terms that they've come out with um because of how they do, I mean, what's essentially marketing, right, for these different kind of concepts, but pushing this idea of a weaponized Christianity that is going to be empowered by God that's going to come and conquer everything. Um, it's it's really interesting because uh, if you go, you know, if you start to look at this stuff, they have things like the, the warrior bride of Christ, right, where it's an, a stock image of a bride with a sword. And then biblical passages, and they they you know kind of reify this concept of this warfare weaponized state and this idea of this sort of conquering flood of believers that's going to come in and crush everything. Um, yeah. I don't know how to without seeing the images, it really doesn't capture just the strangeness of it. You know, this idea of in the and the well, Quakers, they're almost like they're almost like Christian super soldiers, as I've gathered it, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's you know, so if you're if you've got the the fallen angels bringing back the Nephilim, which are you know the mighty men of renown, the giants like uh, Goliath, right? David and Goliath. Um, the the idea is essentially that God is going to give the believers these superpowers. I mean, see Peter Wagner actually called. Um, missions work uh a power encounter between the believer and the um, satanic forces because in this view in this cosmology there's no like believer and unbeliever there's a believer and then there's satan and the unbeliever is simply a tool for satan right until they're converted to a believer so um in any of these things it's not that like, you know, the believers will, will spread this sort of gospel and it'll be, people will come to the belief. It's that they're literally spreading the gospel as a weapon that is fighting Satan's domain, you know, dominion over the earth and reclaiming that dominion for God, um, which when applied politically and in the real world uh, is them 
claiming culture for themselves, essentially, you know, um, I, I had a lot more patience for, for this and a lot more, uh, sympathy for it prior to what's been happening in politics since about 2016 to about well, 2014 um, when these things really started to get applied to, to politics in a major way and when you see it in other countries where you have witch hunts um, where people are actually hurt and killed yeah I mean uh, it's just fair, you know this kind of ideology affects yeah. individuals I mean they're dowed yeah, it's pulled me from like uh, sort of distant scholarship to kind of being appalled and feeling like it needs to be talked about because it really, it's not cool. <laughs> it's yeah. not a, you know, it just, it leads to some just like really horrible things um, in terms of uh, the way that it, it gets reflected in culture and people's beliefs. You know, I mean, when you see people storming out with the QAnon stuff and that into the streets with guns and flags and all the rest of it, um, a lot of those people are going to be similarly aligned with these these groups to some extent, yeah. you know. And so it's and then when you have this concept of Joel's army and this this weaponized Christianity, this is what they were pushing for. They were pushing for people to get out in the streets as warriors, you know, um, and reclaim the world for God. And if you look at the QAnon narrative, they use the same kind of language. You know, yes, I mean, it's what are they framing it now as literally the uh, the great uh, reset versus the great awakening. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and if you the great awakening, I'm sure that if you mm -hmm. Google that, you can find new apostolic reformation groups that were using the exact same language. Yeah, yeah. You know, in terms of the the end times, great awakening of believers, um, and even the the thing that really becomes disturbing is that you will see it within the same time period where different groups will use the same terminology um, for the similar concepts. You know, the um, New Apostolic Reformation talks about portals, right? So portals to the supernatural. When you look at the way that that concept of portals and UFOs come out, they start to pop up in the same way. So you'll get the UFO culture talking about portals and that kind of thing. And at the same time, you're going to have new apostolic reformation groups talking about portals. Um, so as you start to say, well, what's going on there? Why are these UFO folks talking about portals and these ostensibly unconnected, you know, Christian groups talking about portals? Um, and you already sort of have the framework for this laid too by the uh, the good old mighty I am movement, um, where we still sort of have some modern manifestations of that. I mean, that's why I think it's especially interesting that you see somebody like uh, you know Jay Z Knight uh, kind of throwing your lot in with QAnon in recent years. Yeah, yeah, yep. All right, David. Well, to bring things full circle, you have a wonderful concept you refer to as dime store grimoires. Effectively, you argue that the Christian right and their zeal to expose occultism has, in fact, done more to promote it than any other type of overt cult order has. And does this concept apply to Joyner and his uh, more avian fetish? Yeah, so that was actually how I went down uh, this road to looking at these groups. Um, around 2012, 2013, um, I went to, so 
it was well it was whatever year philip k dick's exegesis was published because um i noticed that walmart was selling it on their website and i thought how funny would it be to go to walmart to get a philip k dick book um it'd be like the ultimate like philip k dick experience to be in walmart and have this like dystopian nightmare around me as i picked up this book so i went there you know just on the off chance that they might have it in the physical store which there's no way that they would have had that in the physical store but what they did have, um, which I noticed because it was the first time I'd really taken a look at Walmart's book section, were these books on exorcism. And um, it hit me, uh, why is Walmart selling exorcism books? And these weren't Catholic exorcism books. These are neo-charismatic, new apostolic reformation exorcism books. Um, if Walmart's selling it, there's a market for it. If it ends up on Walmart's shelf, there's money behind it like they're not going to put something you know in their mass distribution that's not going to sell it just doesn't work that way so i got real curious like what is the deal with this like why do they have these books and these weren't this wasn't like you know it was in their their inspirational section but this wasn't you know some kind of like soft sell book on prayer like it was the the particular one that i saw was prayers that route demons by john ecker which is about as blatant as you can get you know i mean that's that title it's prayers that route demons like that there's no question of what this book is so um when i picked up the book looked at it the second thing that struck me was that uh these books were essentially grimoires because a grimoire is a, just simply a grammar of of magic um, grimoire's French word for grammar and grammar uh, is basically the practices that you need to do to induce the effects that you want and you know the this prayers that route demon book was particularly grimoire-ish in its design it had a, a fake kind of leather binding um, with fake metal clasps illustrated on it um, it was made to look like a book of magic and in it it had these prayers for you know how to conquer the various effects of satan in your life but it also named demons that you might encounter this is a grimoire a grimoire names demons it, it gives you a list of demons and how to how to invoke them and how to get them you know to, to how to deal with them right um what is really interesting within that kind of like historically is that exorcism and conjuration come from the same tradition the whole western uh magic tradition of evocation and invocation come out of the catholic tradition of exorcism which includes a conjuration of the demon uh requesting of its name and a banishing right like that's that's ritual magic um and that's what these books were essentially teaching. It was teaching it from a charismatic point of view, so it wasn't as ritualized. But um, as I started to look into these things, the, the weirder element of it was that um, because they were coming out of the new apostolic reformation stream, which was coming out of uh, seminaries and a more structured sort of approach as it was developed, see Peter Wagner being a, you know, a a professor of missions at Fuller Theological Seminary, 
um, it was drawing on mnemonic techniques and it was drawing on cognitive psychology and it was drawing on all these things, but then mixing it through the, uh, you know, sort of Christian mythos. So it just became really interesting to me to then realize, you know, beyond Walmart, these things were in grocery stores. If, you know, when I was, at the time I was driving up to New York a lot, um, they'd be in truck stops, you know? So here it is like these grimoires, right? That are available at a grocery store, at a Walmart, at a truck stop. And not only that, not only are they available, but they obviously have people buying them and people practicing it. Um, and that's when I started to really see like, wow, this stuff is way more prevalent than you'd ever imagine. You know, when the media covers exorcism, they're covering Catholic exorcism. Rarely do they ever talk about charismatic exorcisms. Um, and unless... it's really, really prominent in those circles too. I mean, a lot of people- Absolutely, yeah. It's a core, you know, it's one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You shall cast out devils. It's, it's right in there, you know, the, the theology of it. So it's not, you know, this is, uh, you know, it's, it's a core of their, their belief system. Not only is it a core of their belief system, but these books, which reframe that core and re, you know, kind of retool it for the new apostolic reformation ideologies are widely available, you know, in, in stores. No, I mean, it is just a fascinating thing. Um, and just again, you know, how you sort of see this covertly, uh, you know, given out to segments of the populace, which probably would have, you know, potentially higher ratios of substance abuse, possibly, uh, you know, domestic issues, uh, mental instability than maybe uh, more affluent segments of the populace would, though that is, I guess, I suppose, a bit of a stereotype in some ways, but. Well, and, and also, you know, in terms of that, like when you look at like the Walmart bookshelf, right? Like at the time, um, there were a lot of uh, like kind of like tween supernatural fiction, right? Um, and now I guess even they've still got like the Stephen King books and then that kind of thing. So when you go and you look at the, the way that these things are presented, you're going to walk in and see the novels and everything. And it's going to be like a romance novel, um, you know, some kind of like supernatural, like paranormal romance stuff, a Stephen King book, and then a book on exercising demons, which if you open it up is going to tell you by looking or reading Stephen King that you're invested with demons, right? So like even the way that it's arranged in the store, you're going to have uh, this kind of interplay of belief and behavior that reifies and reaffirms what you're seeing, you know? So not only when you read the paranormal romance, uh, it's going to have, you know, vampires, or what I don't know you know, like whatever is the, the characteristic paranormal element in that, right? And then when you read the supernatural living stuff from the Christian deliverance uh, charismatic tradition, it's going to tell you that you could be this super being, right? Um, but in order to do so, you have to renounce this occult book that you read, um, you know? And so it's this weird interplay of what look like opposing opposite things, which actually in their presentation and in the way that they work in culture, help to to support each other you know you can't have a witch hunter unless you have a witch you can't have uh, an exorcist unless you have a demon you know um it's it's a really weird kind of psychology of the market that goes on with this stuff which um looking at the new apostolic reformation works and that you know or the ideas of the seven uh 
seven mountain mandate from Bill Bright, they're very well aware of those, those kind of mechanisms that are going to be occurring. I was kind of, I was thinking too, I mean, it seems like, I mean, obviously they're not as prevalent now, but I mean, it really seems like um, daytime talk shows would have been another major uh, vehicle for spreading this type of stuff. I mean, of course, alone was so instrumental in the spread of the secrets and a lot of these, I don't know, Atlantean traditions or whatever you want to guess. Yeah. And then you have stuff like that, like where you have the, the popularity of the secret, which is another version of the same ideas that are prevalent in a lot of the charismatic stuff. You know, the, um, the, uh, appeal. yeah, well, and also, I mean, like the, the more, the more directly charismatic stuff, like it's, uh, called the word of God, where if, you know, the, uh, the slang within Christ, like church circles is name it and claim it, where if you name it, you can claim it as yours under God, right? Cause that's, you've got dominion over the world. So if you name that wealth, that wealth is going to come to you. Um, I'm trying to think of, a. You'd see this a lot on televangelists. Kenneth Copeland would be a word of God kind of guy where, you know, you just claim that blessing, right? Like you just, you reach out, you get that blessing, just name it, put your, put your, uh, you know, put your prayer in for that and you'll get it. Um, T.D. Jakes would be another example, um, who's a big televangelist, whose books are available at at Walmart and that. Um, But then you have someone like the, you know, Rhonda Burns and The Secret, which is saying the exact same thing. Um, they're both, and they're both coming out of similar cultural milieus again, of this weird interplay between what people consider a cult and what people consider Christian. Um, you know, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, New Thought, um, New Thought, and charismatic and Pentecostal movements were inter, intertwining with each other and flowing through each other, or even during the Healing Revival period, which I, I mentioned earlier. Yeah, the Christian science movement and that, but also in the healing revival, one of the interesting kind of interplays is UFOlogy, mm-hmm. where um, it, one of the largest waves of the healing revival comes out at the same time as the contactee period, like the early like um, contactees and that. So, you know, you've got Van Tassel writing about a sort of mystical Christianity, while at the same time you have these healing revivalists saying that the UFOs are angels coming down and they're a sign of the end times, right? And, and the contactees are presenting this kind of end times message from another angle. And the, the weird thing is that you have the very early part of that, some of the contactees were being invited to churches to talk about their contactee experiences with, you know, the UFO beings, right? And then as that became, you know, it's, it's a short period of time because shortly after that, you have what people now are uh, familiar with uh, as the Collins elite concept of you know ufos or demons or whatever um but that idea like the collins elite is a another kind of mythology that's overlaid over a much more complex interaction between these uh these groups and these ideas um you know the idea of the ufo as demon was not how it originally started out it actually was that the ufos were you know angels coming down and you can find books from uh 47 and to about 53 where some of the charismatic writers are writing about UFOs as a manifestation of the end times in a positive way um, and having interactions with contactees. I'm also kind of reminded of, uh, what's his name, William Dudley uh, Haley too. Yeah, yeah. You know, the whole I am, you as well. So, I mean, it's, uh, it's fascinating. Um, 
But yeah, on that kind of note of this sort of strange blend of metaphysics and uh, hardline Christian fundamentalism, uh, let's talk about uh, a specific topic I'm quite obsessed with. Uh, it's, a it's these uh, pseudo-chivalric orders, especially those claiming descent from the Knights of Malta. In these United States, these groups are typically referred to as the Sovereign Order of St. John or some variation thereof. Joyner is in one of these orders of St. John. To start off with, can you tell us how he become involved? How he became involved in this netherworld? Yeah, so he actually has on uh, on the Morningstar Ministries website. He has a a write up of his experience, um, which is kind of nice to have. Um, and he has it there because within fundamentalist Christianity and within charismatic and Pentecostal Christianity, definitely within evangelicalism, um, it is forbidden you know, in terms of the theology and the doctrine and the dogma to be involved with these kind of orders. Um, Southern Baptists have had a long battle with the influence of Freemasonry in congregations. Um, they, it's a loose battle you know, in terms of the fact that so many people in the South are involved in Freemasonry that it it's, it's becomes almost absurd to try to separate the two. But, um, with this uh, Knights of Malta thing, there are pictures out there of Rick Joyner um, with Jerry Boykin, I believe, who we'll talk about in a little bit here, um, dressed up in their full regalia, their ritual regalia. Um, and they became a weapon because one of the interesting things you find with the Christian groups is that because there is this concept of heresy, um, there are um, groups of there are ministries specifically to hunt out heresy in the church whether you know in the, in the wider church body so if someone's appearing in ritual regalia from a you know fraternal order they're going to have their picture put up and they're going to have a long rant about why this is the worst thing ever and all the examples of their heretical you know how this heretical ideas influence their teachings so joiner's pictures out there so he's you know targeted with you know, this is bad. And so the way he explains it is that he visited Malta when in the Navy um, and was, you know, very interested in this concept of the, uh, the Knights of Malta being the last bastion of European Christian civilization against the Islamic hordes that were coming in and how this small group of brave and faithful knights held up against waves of you know invading uh foreigners and so he was kind of captured by that during his time in the navy and then later in life during his travels um he encountered members of this order um then was surprised to find oh hey these knights of malta still exist right and uh that's this fraternal order of faithful people that you can't, you can't join. Like you can't ask to join. You have to be asked to join. So he becomes, according to his story, he becomes kind of interested in this to the point where he prays to be accepted into this. Now, while he's having these thoughts, and again, this is all according to his mythologizing of these events, um, friends of his who are prophets are coming to him, uh, telling him that God's going to give him this honor and, you know, he's going to have this honor coming to him and he's going to have something that sort of cements his worldly goal as being a knight, right? And his books um, are, after the 
there are two trees in the garden. His books are these prophetic visions that are very knight oriented and chivalric, and they're about you know Christian knights coming forward and stuff. Um, uh, I forget the the title of the books, but like the whole vision of is basically of knights and eagles and and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, they're telling him that he's going to be brought into this, and he ends up in Europe um, and uh, encounters a number of the Knights of Malta order uh, that, which it should be pointed out too, that this Knights of Malta order is not, the most people yeah. would, yeah, it's not, it's not the Catholic Knights of Malta, which is a, a different deal. Yeah. You know, so, so he encounters this, this offshoot Knights of Malta. Um, Though they all claim to be the, the actual Knights of Malta and there's, they often sue each other over this uh, particular honor as well. Yeah, that's the the joy of these these orders. They're always once they splinter, you know, you get all sorts of fun legal battles over the the branding, which is the most. <laughs> we're a great spiritual order, and and we really are going to hound our copyright. Yeah, know? yeah. Well, we have half a dozen lawsuits out against yeah. everything yeah, we can imagine. Yeah. Um, so he uh, so he encountered. He's in Europe, and he's encountering these people. But the thing is that the people he's encountering are like diplomats. Right. Like he's not like rubbing up against like local businessmen. Like these are barons and whatnot. Probably not anymore because depending on what country they're from, it's illegal to, to claim your aristocracy at this point. But, um, you know, these are these are landed gentry, essentially, that he's encountering and that have diplomatic functions in that. And one of them, uh, as joiners in conversation with him, uh, it turns out that this person has just been asked to join the order. And it just so happens that the order uh, had mentioned Rick Joyner and that they had been reading his book and they were really impressed by it. Um, so he essentially has written a Rosicrucian letter. Um, if anyone's familiar with the Rosicrucian mythos, the idea back in the 17th century was that you could write a letter to the brethren and if they felt that you were worthy, they would contact you, right? Because they're invisible. So um, he's essentially in his books written a letter to the brethren and they've read his book and been quite impressed. So he becomes involved with this group. And what he was impressed by was the working of God within the, the political structure because the people that he's encountering who are members of this order are all faithful Christians who are highly placed politically um, and socially and are able to get God's will done within the real world. Um, which if you want to see that in practice, watch the family uh, Netflix documentary or read Jeff Charlotte's book, the family um, and see what he's talking about in terms of highly placed people with Christian beliefs, getting things done. Um, again, we've, it's, a, it's an insurgency, right? Like when we're talking about cell groups. We're talking about, um, you know, political manipulations uh, under this auspice of dominionism. Um, and that, you know, so his story is that essentially he got asked to join because they were so impressed with his book. Um, and he was so impressed with their uh, faithful adherence to the gospel while caring about their uh, worldly duties that he was happy to join. Um, you know, he claims that uh, he's not ashamed of joining an elite body of believers and that he, you know, it's not exclusive. It's merely elite in the sense that um, would that all were as good a Christians as those who are acceptable to the order. 
what is essentially his defense. So, you know, um, how much of that is true? I'm sure that he was mixing with political people. His book was a bestseller. He had influence. Um, it fit within a certain framework of being able to mythologize and create real world effects, you know? So he, uh, you know, and through that, um, we have, uh, we have Jerry Boykin, who is also a member of this order. And uh, I think you can explain a little bit about him and why that's an interesting. Yeah. Kind of yeah. Well, I mean, first off, I mean, you know, I, I just need to point out too, um, it's easy to sort of dismiss these groups as being rather silly marginal forces. But I mean, the reality is that uh, these groups have been used quite extensively uh, by the military in this country for any number of years. And uh, certainly one of the most notorious of these uh, pseudo shipwreck orders is uh, the Shikshini Knights of Malta, one of the many variations of Sovereign Order of St. John's, uh, which was just loaded with any number of former uh, military officers, some intelligence officers. And uh, this group just, it had a lot of ties to some of these fringe Christian sects we've been talking talking about uh, certainly Dominionists, some traditional Catholics, but even more ominously were um, its litany of ties to Christian identity theology, quote unquote. And um, if you've studied uh, the history of Christian identity theology in this country, you know that it has been deeply implicated in acts of terrorism uh, for decades now. Um, you know, probably the apex where the potential involvement it had in Oklahoma City, but I mean, you can just po point to a host of other outrageous linked to it uh, for years and years now. So anyway, what that amounts to is that um, there is a real possibility that this uh, particular Shikshini group was potentially equivalent to something like Propaganda Dewey in Italy, uh, which was also implicated in a lot of acts of terror there during the years of lead and so forth. So, you know, these are some sinister things that go on with these groups. So in that context, you know, we've talked about Joel's army uh, and I found that especially disturbing concept in light of this guy that you've been talking about, uh, General William Jerry Boykin. General Boykin was a longtime member of the Delta Force who had headed the Joint Special Operations Command for a time. In other words, he spent most of his military career in the Special Operations Forces. And during the Bush two years, he became the Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence. Under the reforms initiated at the Pentagon by Rumsfeld, Boykin's boss, the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence was effectively made the most powerful intelligence officer in the entire Pentagon. Okay, the heads of the DIA, NSA and all of the uh, individual military intelligence branches all report to this post. Uh, in a lot of ways, this post is probably the second most powerful um, intelligence officer in the entire government next to the director of the CIA, quite frankly. So as such, Boykin was the second most powerful intelligence officer in the Pentagon and maybe number three or four in the total pecking order all, when all things were said and done. So he was an extremely senior special operator and intelligence officer. And here he is in this version of the SOSJ with Joyner and this whole concept of Joel's army floating around. David, that kind of scares the hell out of me. Does that scare the hell out of you as well? Yeah, especially, yeah, absolutely. Especially as we've seen um, these groups uh, being, you know, tied to folks like Paula White um, and being tied to current 
you know, sort of shifts in the concept of democracy, I think that it's extremely disturbing. And, you know, with Boykin, he's not just in the same order. He speaks at Morningstar Ministries events. He's, uh, he evangelizes with them. Um, he's, you know, directly placed within this. And, you know, the, to, to, you know, further the sort of weirdness of it, um, Morningstar Ministries music director is this guy, Don Potter, who is a, a Nashville producer that's worked with folks like Winona Judd um, and has worked with Elton John and that. You know, so in talking about the influence and the sort of uh, these networks and that, like we're talking about, <laughs> we're talking about things that, you know, again, these seven mountains, they're not joking. Like they're literally infiltrating and creating power bases within all the levers and mechanisms of society from the military to the arts, to the political structures and at a local level through local churches. Um, you know, and once you get to the local level with the local churches, uh, it's a level of influence that's very diffuse, you know, but it comes through in the fact that their books are available in uh, Walmart, you know, um, or at least bo books by tangential allies uh, are available in Walmart, which are framing the worldview for a large section of the population. So when you have somebody who was that high up in defense intelligence, who's very well aware of the tools necessary to shape society and to shape public opinion and that kind of thing. I mean, that's, that's like a low order, easy kind of thing, right? And then you see that that person is involved with uh, an organization like Morningstar Ministries, uh, which is uh, involved in this wider movement of parachurch organizations organizations which stretch all the way to the Walmart bookshelves, right? There's something incredibly disturbing about that. Um, and like I said before, you know, I had some more sympathy for this stuff until the weight of what I was seeing really hit me. And then it became, you know, it wasn't goofy Christian stuff. It wasn't curious, interesting things I could look at in a scholarly way, but it was a kind of, uh, you know, veil being lifted on the fact that this stuff is all over the place. Yeah. I mean, people who literally died over this stuff. I mean, that. Yeah. Made, oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, in, in South America alone, you have somebody like Bolsonaro who, um, you know, one of the weirdest things uh, a colleague of mine, Dr. Andrew Chestnut has been writing about and looking at is militant Pentecostal gangs where you have cartels, and you know, gang organizations, which are essentially militant groups that are Pentecostal groups as well. It's like a, you know, what if your local church was also, uh, you know, a violent drug running gang, right? And they still did the Sunday service, but afterwards they went out and killed people who didn't believe and acted as kind of like political thugs, you know? Um, and we're starting to see that kind of stuff. We're starting to see, you know, especially this year and the end of last year, where these groups, which have been kind of cooking uh, in the background, are becoming militarized in the sense of actually going out with weapons um, and going out. And, you know, it's becoming much less prevalent when you hear those reports on the news where the FBI is talking about white nationalist groups gaining influence and gaining power. You know, a lot of those groups, like you'd said, um, 
with the Christian identity movement and that that's the, that's what we're seeing here. Yeah, you well, know, I, was I, mean, think you know, I mean, Christian identity, I mean, it never had that many adherents in the grand scheme of things, even its absolute apex, probably like the late 70s, early 80s thereabouts. Uh, so, yeah, you just look at the amount of violence attributed to what really was a very marginal sect uh, ideology in the grand scheme of things. I mean, just imagine, you know, what, you know, could happen with a broader movement like QAnon. It's, it's right. really disturbing. Right. So be afraid. Or be prepared, I guess, more. Yeah, yeah. We are definitely uh, heading into some unsettled times with this stuff. That is for sure. It's the end times, Stephen. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that certainly does seem to be the case. Well, it has been a fascinating chat, David. I definitely have to have you back here sometime, uh, probably soon, maybe to talk some QAnon or something like that. Sure. Yeah, this is great. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to uh, speak about one of my obsessions. Sure, sure, sure. Well, I want to thank all of you guys out there, as always, for listening. Uh, be sure to check us out next week. And uh, again, remember, you know, we are now doing two extra shows a month for uh, paid subscribers. So check those out, too. Uh, more exclusive gifts and content and all kinds of goodies. And with that, I will wrap things up for now. As always, good night and good luck to you all.